Hello and welcome to the Mountain State Liberty Cast. I'm your host, Ty Ward. This podcast is brought to you by the Libertarian Party of West Virginia. Um, today we have our co-host, Taylor Richmond. Uh, good afternoon, Taylor. Hey, good afternoon, Ty. Long time to talk to. Yeah, definitely. It's been a little bit. Um, so it has been an interesting you know, week or last couple of weeks in the legislature, and we haven't uh, talked a lot about the legislature. We uh, this is episode eleven. I didn't say at the top, but we're uh, we're getting up there in double digits, so we're we're doing pretty good. Um, so the legislature they've been going along. It's kind of like what we predicted after the state of the state. The legislature has done some things that kind of election type uh, vote pandering bills, but they've not done done a lot of the typical stuff from the last couple of years where they spend a lot of money and they they give. I think the form energy thing we talked about before. We're giving you know, close to $300 million to a battery company kind of backfired on them. I think they're getting a little bit of pushback from that. I think that's great. And then the whole idea of changing their primaries, I think they're kind of seeing, which is good. They're seeing the writing on the wall that some of this stuff isn't popular. But uh, I, I wanted to kind of start the podcast with a PSA just for me personally. So one of the good things that's come out of the House of Representatives in the West Virginia legislature was th- and just a little backstory, sorry, back up a little bit. In West Virginia, raw milk, if anybody doesn't know what raw milk is, it's milk that it's exactly pretty self-explanatory. You you milk the cow, you put it in some sort of vessel, and you drink it. Or you separate the cream, whatever you do. <laughs> but you're, it's not pasteurized, not homogenized. Um, it's straight from the cow. And that's considered raw milk. And in this country... There's a long history that I won't go into, but basically people have decided that the reason we started pasteurizing milk was for safety. That isn't true. It was more for transportation and a lot of other things. There's a, there's a long his, interest, interesting history past the Civil War as to why we started pasteurizing milk and things like that, and it's not what people think it is. But the lay of the land now is in West Virginia five or six years ago, maybe even longer, they passed a law that said you could sell raw milk, but people who bought it from you had to have participate in what they call herd share, meaning they buy basically a share of the cow that you're milking or the herd or whatever. And it was basically just to placate the dairy industry to say that raw milk wasn't fully legal. Well, this past week in the West Virginia legislature, the House of Representatives, they passed a bill that said there is no, there will be no more um, herd share. It'll just be straight to consumer. A farmer can sell pasteurized milk to somebody that wants to buy it. Now, the history of that, there's lots of things, as I just stated. There's people that think it's a health health risk. Um, there's a lot of lobbying going on with the dairy industry. But the plain fact of the matter is this bill gives freedom to farmers to sell their products to consumers directly, which is a huge win. It, it, is, it is freedom. It is reinstating freedom that has been taken. And the problem I have, and this becomes the PSA, is I'm seeing a lot of, seeing a lot of legislatures from the Republican Party who did vote for this bill, so I'll give them kudos there. But they're saying, oh, you know, there's a lot of real, quote-unquote, real freedom bills that are getting pushed back and said in the back burner, well, you know, but we can pass raw milk. This is ridiculous. Well, let's take a step back and look at what freedom means. Um, freedom is basically just people being able to associate with each other how they see fit without the encroachment of the government. That's the you know most basic definition. And you giving that freedom of to sell raw milk to somebody – I don't. I know that it doesn't affect most people, but uh, full disclosure, my farm we we have two milk cows and we milk for our own consumption. 
and, uh, you know, allegedly <laughs> we might uh, make a few shekels on giving some to a few people, you know, maybe as pet food or whatever. I don't, I'll not go there, I'll throw myself under the bus, <laughs> um, allegedly. But uh, it basically would mean that, you know, if our neighbor or somebody I work with wants to buy a couple quarts of raw milk, they can. Um and to me, that's a huge win because that might buy a bag of feed for the for the cow, and, and we use it mostly for personal consumption. But there are farmers that do have herds of cows that they sell raw milk to, and they have to go through this rigmarole of the herd share. And this will make it a lot easier for them to sell their product, grow the small market economy in our state, and maybe even get new farmers to come here and say, hey, they've opened up this law. And we can sell raw milk in West Virginia. That is a huge win for freedom. That is that is a reduction in government power. And I don't care if it doesn't affect you or not. That should be a significant win for you, and you should be cheerleading it. You shouldn't be saying, oh, well, our, that one of the bills, a vaccine freedom bill, basically a health freedom bill, that says you know, you're free to have religious exemptions or just personal exemptions from vaccines or to be able to refuse medical care. And we all know, read between the lines, this came from, mostly came from COVID, but a lot of our surrounding states have these laws where you don't have to get your child vaccinated to go to public school if you have religious um, opposition to those vaccines. And it's basically just bringing West Virginia up to snuff. Well, that was, it did eventually pass when a lot of people were making these comments that was one of the things they were complaining about. And to me, that vaccine or health freedom bill means about as much to me as the raw milk bill does. And I get that it doesn't to some people, but it doesn't make me say, oh, that's uh, who cares about the vaccine bill? I, that doesn't affect me. I'm going to get my kids vac- vaccinated. Those people are uh, committing some sort of health violation. and They're going to make everyone sick. The exact ju- juxtaposition of people saying that against raw milk. It's the same thing. But, hey, guess what? You don't have to believe in it to think that it's a win for freedom. And, and that's just my PSA is, is don't scoff at things. Don't scoff at little wins. If you're a Republican, you consider yourself a conservative. Conservative In the West Virginia legislature, it's few and far between that you get these kind of wins. So celebrate every bit of it and use that momentum. I don't understand why somebody wouldn't say, I want to get votes and I want to look appealing to people by passing as many freedoms as I possibly can. And Taylor, we we haven't talked about this, but um, you're more of a history buff than I am. I'm, I like history, but you seem to be more akin to some of the, the past. But when you look at things like raw milk and even, you know, the vaccine stuff, wh- where did this start? Where do we go wrong in taking these freedoms away? <laughs> Well, uh, unfortunately, Ty, I'm not going to be able to give you an exact date or time, but I, you know, I think you you see um, an indoctrination almost, and I'm I'm glad you highlighted the the safety issue or really the lack of a safety issue around raw milk because um, you know I, I'm a libertarian. I was obviously for this bill, but I just assumed that there was probably some type of um, expectation of you know regulation for safety involved in in, in it um, but it goes back as you were talking uh, and you mentioned to more transportation and allowing it uh, being kept longer and 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 moved around and it came a regulation that obviously um, benefited the larger scale um, farmers and, and dairy operations um, so all it eventually did was, kept out the small scale farmers who were, as you were saying, selling um, at local farmers markets and the like, and making a few shekels on the side um, via this 
this possibility. And somewhere along the way, I, again, I don't know where, as a society, we got indoctrinated to believe that the only safe way to drink milk was if it came in the the gallon um, with the uh, you know with a supermarket logo on it, um, and that has happened with so many other in- entities and, um, and uh, operations and and businesses and things that we've been told that the the only way to have it done safely is if there are these regulations and thing, things in place to quote unquote protect us and all that really does is it eliminates one freedom but it also eliminates competition for these larger scale corporations so I, I again, uh, I, I believe it is also a win for freedom. Uh, it is kind of frustrating as you hear folks talk about it in, in the media and around the state and kind of like, like you said, scoff at it because it's like, oh, these these hill folk just want to drink their their nasty, you know, dangerous raw milk. It's like, no, that's not it at all. There's not a safety concern or, or anything along those lines. But I think there's a bigger issue of thinking critically and asking questions and not just trusting everything it's rammed down your throat by by media and, and other outlets and to ask yourself okay why why would people want to drink do they want to drink something dangerous and you actually talk to a farmer or someone who uh, consumes and sell you know wants to sell and they'll they can tell you the information that you just provided that it's completely safe and that uh, there's all kinds of uses for it um, without having to go through all these pasteurization processes and additional costs on the on the farmer so along the way we've just stopped asking those questions and just began to trust too much what the government has told us is safe or not yeah and i don't want to make people think that there isn't any risk to you know just this specific thing any risk to buying and consuming raw milk but honestly unless there is some sort of you know people talk about that there's a hot button things like with every issue you hear these hyper this hyperbolic language well you know cows can carry tuberculosis hey hey uh, taylor <laughs> when's the last person you've ever known that got tuberculosis uh, not once ever. Yeah. So my wife is a nurse and she has had patients that had tuberculosis and they were typically homeless people that were eating trash or the like. Like it's an extreme thing. And in a little bit of knowledge from our farm, we again, allegedly, uh, we might sell here and there once in a while, but it's it's a trusted person that knows the risk and uh, allegedly. And <laughs> um, we we got a cow here last year. We bought it from a guy, and he clearly got it from a stock sale. Maybe she was used as a nurse cow. I know these are you know things outside of most people's general knowledge, but people have milk cows that maybe they have a cow that's not producing, and they put a calf on it, and that's their entire job is to feed you know wayward calves. <laughs> but when we got her in, you know what we did? Uh, she had a calf on her. We we sampled her milk. We got it tested. We had it sent off to tested. We, we wormed her, we vaccinated, we waited six or seven months before we ever even thought about milking her. We, we got the, all the test backs for the typical um, diseases and, you know, any sort of uh, a- adverse things that you could test for. And she was clear and we started consuming her milk. Uh, but we did that voluntarily. Nobody said we had to do it. We could have just gotten her and, and, and we could have honestly just started selling the milk and breaking the law and doing whatever we wanted. But we didn't do that because we're responsible people. I know that's a novel concept to most people. And as we've talked about before, you have the cases of people doing the wrong thing and this and that, but 
the the idea of the free market is I sell milk to somebody and it makes them sick. Like we said before, what are they not going to do again? Buy milk from me. They're not going to buy milk from me again. And if we have a cow that makes our family sick, we're going to rethink drinking that raw milk again. But it, but that's not the case. As I just stated, in our specific anecdotal instant, instance, uh, we, we tested. We did all the right things. We did what we were supposed to do based on the standards and all the, the current information. We did those things voluntarily. And most people do those things because they don't want to make their customers sick, especially in a niche market like raw milk where you're your reputation is everything. These are this happens day in day out in a thousand different markets and and I wanted to bring up the a couple of years ago um we all know the whole the issue with catalytic converters in in West Virginia and it's a trope where people steal catalytic converters as an income and blah blah blah. Well, it it is a problem and it, and it goes back to what we've t- talked about before is crime goes up when e- economies go down and people are desperate and they they make money how they can. But our state put the onus on catalytic converter theft basically on the junk dealers. And I have a bit of personal stake. I have family that that works in that industry and and when copper was a huge issue with theft they put the onus on them. They, they had to take thumbprints of people selling copper and get a copy of their driver's license. Well, the person I know that, you know, deals in this industry, I'm not going to put their information out there just because I'm not sure if they want to. But they've never had anybody come look at those li- driver's licenses. They didn't end up having to take thumbprints, but that was in the legislation initially. And you tell me some some junk dealer with a bunch of, you know, uh, shady um copies of driver's licenses that's going to hold up in court i don't think so but that but they made them do this and with catalytic converters they put it on them that they have to do i think it was a a a week-long holding period before they could write them a check for the catalytic converter and they had to write their name down and and all this stuff and again they never come check this information it's just basically the legislature taking the onus off of law enforcement and putting it on these people. And when I questioned some of our legislators about it at the time, they said, well, you know, we had people come in and talk to us about it, and they said it was a good idea. And and I told them, I said, look, I know, I, I know that this is anecdotal, but if you talk to many of these junk dealers, they don't think it's a good idea. They think that it's not going to help, and it puts a lot of undue stress on them to have to do things. Customers coming in, and you've got to give them your driver's license and their name and the address and all these things. You're hurting their business with little to no result. The copper theft went down when the price of copper went down. And the same thing will happen with catalytic converters. And these legislators, I understand it is very hard to know all the ins and outs of every subject, but this is the problem. With democracy, and I know a lot of people when they hear democracy, we've got it, you know, driven into our brains that our country is a democracy. Well, we're not a democracy, and this is the problem with democracy: is the majority, whether that be fifty-one percent or ninety-nine percent, they get to decide what happens. And when you have that fifty-one percent that doesn't really understand the issue, they make laws and and that go into code that affect people, and they don't really understand those issues, and it becomes a huge problem for people. And they've you know they they pat each other on the back and go on with their day, but then the, the people that do this, in this case the junk dealers, they have to deal with this until maybe something changes, or they just the people just forget about the code and stop enforcing it. But these are issues that they have to deal with day in and day out. And and the problem with the Democratic legislature where they consider themselves to be the people that are supposed to be keeping us safe from raw milk and catalytic converter theft, 
they don't take all of the different variables into consideration. And, and in raw milk, they erred on the side of freedom, which I applaud them for. But in the case of catalytic converters, they didn't. They erred on the side of safety. Who's made safer by it? I, I mean, I don't know that anybody really is because people, the catalytic converters theft is still happening. Uh, I don't know that the rates have gone down. I haven't, they, they just kind of ta- stopped talking about these issues. But uh, it's a real problem with people, you know, cheerleading for democracy and cheerleading for the legislature keeping us safe. Yeah, Ty, and and I think you know the one of the big issues is we we begun we have trusted government far too long under the guise of safety, and they pass all of these laws on both sides, left and right, um, under the auspice of keeping us safer. And we talked about it with the war on drugs, and we talked about it on another a number of other issues. It's very easy for a legislature or a congressperson to stand up and, and highlight an issue and say, you know, this is a problem and to make us safer, you know, it's kind of like that old uh, family guy skit where if you just say the right buzzwords, people just will stand up and applaud and vote for you. And and safety is always uh, one that uh, no matter what the issue is, seems to drive people out to vote and, and get behind. And unfortunately, there are, as you mentioned, numerous unintended consequences either to uh, the folks involved, the market, um, et cetera, that they don't have a clear understanding of and don't do the due diligence to actually think through. And it's just like, oh, especially in, in legislative sessions like we have right now, which, you know, they're they're talking about being a boring one. There's not a, a, teaker, a teacher strike and there's not a, a budget deficit or they're not impeaching the whole Supreme Court. They have all they have opportunities to go out and, and get this, quote unquote, red meat items. Um, and go after them and, and throw on the trope of making us safer. And, you know, I think, you know, you alluded to, and, and we've talked about on other issues, it really actually doesn't. Um, it, and when it, it's the, the sad part is once they make these changes, these put these laws into place and all these unintended consequences come about, like you said, what happens, they don't go back and correct them. They just don't talk about them anymore. And the people that work in and around those industries that were impacted have to just put up with it and live with it and and scream and shake their hands at the at the clouds as they, as they pass by. And another legislative session goes on and comes and goes. And we just get actually less free because they're trying to, quote unquote, keep us safe. Yes. And on the auspice of uh, industries, uh, there's a recent story coming out of West Virginia that a company that I'm not real sure what they do per se. I think I've seen them. I think they might make wood stove pellets, but I'm not entirely sure. But there's a company called I think it's Allegheny Wood something wood products in West Virginia. And they they have I think it was eight locations across the state. So they're pretty expansive here. Eight hundred some employees. They announced that they will be closing the doors on Friday of next week. And that is a huge hit for a lot of those 800-some employees and a huge hit for the state when you consider how small our population is. And this story came across, and it is interesting to me and something we need to talk about because of the state's reaction. Um, We we had uh, the Office of Economic Development, uh, one of their sub departments, I don't know what it's called, but Mitch Carmichael, former Senate president, runs that office, which I thought he was had been uh, canned, but I, I guess not. I don't know. But uh, he, he came out and made a statement saying that they're going to do everything they can to see what they can do to help the company and and see if maybe somebody could take over those uh, 
the, the business, another company might absorb them. I don't know. And then they, they said, we're going to do everything we can to put a, put together an emergency response team to help find, get, help these employees find new jobs. And it, it's interesting from a libertarian aspect because is this the role of government? Now, when you, the problem is in today's day and age, and it's something we've discussed, when the government inserts itself into the markets, it's hard to differentiate between what effects the government's having on markets and what is actually just the natural flow of business. In a free in free market capitalism, you'd see this company failing and you would say, oh, well, they didn't do something right. Their prices were too high. They made an inferior product. They couldn't make the margins. But when you have the federal and state government regulating so heavily and, and controlling what people are doing, it's not been said what the specific reasons for this company shutting down, and I'm sure it'll come out later. But you have to imagine there's some sort of regulation, maybe the current Dem- Democratic uh, federal administration, which has been very heavy on environmental issues, anything to do with natural resources, wood manufacturing, you have to think that maybe there's something there. But we have to talk about what the role of government is. Is it the role of government to help these people find new jobs? Do they help me when I want to start a business, try to figure out what's going on with that and how, how I do it better? They don't. But And when I want to leave a job and go find another one, is there an emergency response team to help me? No, no, there's not. I mean, I've got kids and, and I could really, I could probably use that help if it, if it was available, but it's not really. And the idea of them intervening and trying to find another company to take over the, the operations of this business, is that the role of government? And for a lot of people, unfortunately, that seems to be correlating to what we've been talking about. With the idea of the nanny state, this is this is what people want. They want the government to step in when there's any sort of wrinkle in the daily lives of of people and what they're doing and, and how their jobs are lining up and whether people are employed or not. And with unemployment, you know, we pay Social Security, Medicare, all these things. They've basically given so given themselves this responsibility of making sure that people are uh, stable. And I just feel like there's a there's a trap there that we fall into far too often where people aren't taking the responsibility for you know creating their own unemployment through you know savings accounts this and that whatever but are these people destitute after this company closes down i don't know but what do you what what's the what's the libertarian take on what the government is is talking about and whether they should be doing something yeah. So just a, just a note, Ty, um, they're, you know, reading a couple of articles of, about this earlier, uh, apparently they had requested, I guess, permission from the County to, uh, expand and added an additional fumigation plant or facility that they needed, my guess is to maintain sales or profits or, or whatever. And the, the County d- denied that. And, um, to not long after that, they, announced that they were were not going to move forward with a permit an air quality permit that they needed which was kind of i guess the the writing on the walls uh for this so i don't know how actual sudden it it was uh though it's what uh, mr carmichael was claiming it to be um and the problem i think ty is that you know the the we as Americans and I probably society and uh, civilization at large expects that safety net 
uh, as you as you mentioned. And the problem with that is it's just a vicious cycle that leads back to Keynesian economics, right? Where in, in that central planning, it's like, well, if the state is going to be required and responsible to provide safety, then it makes logical sense for the state to be involved in taking actions to prevent that need from coming about, i.e., central planning and involving involving itself in in business affairs and and the like. So then, you know, we get stuck, like you said, in this trap. You know, obviously, the, the libertarian uh, stance would be that without the burning cost of the state that it is, folks would have much more um, freedom and, and resources to contribute to uh, programs and organizations that we've highlighted before, you know, like United Way and, and church uh, food banks and, and other um, programs that would be there uh, and ready to, to assist and, and not run by a state. Because whatever the state is going to do in this situation, because they're going to at least, you know, this is obviously the time to win votes and um, hearts and minds is to do something, if not just be on the scene and, and talking to folks. But whatever they do is going to be a waste of, of resources um, or at least a, a bloat of, of resources and, and not directing them as uh, strategically as they should have been. So you're going to have some investigative committees looking in retraining and, and so on. And there'll be experts that will tell them, Oh, well, you know, <laughs> kind of like what happened with the coal mines is if they just learn how to code um, and they'll look to create programs, um, you know, right there in Petersburg, Hardy County, there's Eastern Community Technical College. I'm sure they'll look to provide some degree that the experts will recommend, but the market won't and they'll be behind on and so on. So it, it's just a, a really terrible cycle. Libertarian stance is that the the market would dictate what should be going on in that area, anyways, and not as you mentioned the regulations and things that probably pigeonhole them um, into just this major uh, company being the almost the one of the major sole uh, economic drivers of that area that now is leaving the area destitute. So here you have a whole uh, region of the the state that is. Um, been left out to dry because they trusted the state to be the the driving force of the economy. And, and now they don't have anything there where the market would have helped them diversify and have other opportunities uh, if something would have, have would have had happened um, in, a, in a free market situation. And that brings me that, that I don't think we've talked much about it yet, but unemployment itself the idea that you lose your job or, you know, you get laid off and the government has a program where you sign up and you get a paycheck. And, and I've had to deal with that through my job and it w wasn't really something I wanted to do. And, and you pay into unemployment and your employer pays into unemployment and then you're beholden to the government to decide how much you get. And it's almost certainly, it's almost never equal to what you pay into it. It's not your full wage. They give you what I'd, whatever calculation they've made to determine how much you, you get to make based on that. And it's it's a Ponzi scheme, just like Social Security and, and Medicare is this money isn't in some pot somewhere. It's just free floating through the economy and they, they pay as it comes in back from the money you're already paying in and somebody else is paying in. And basically all unemployment is is a savings account. 
if they just put the onus or expected the onus to be on the individual to save their money for a rainy day, what's the idea of a rainy day? You know, it comes from the old adage of farmers, you know, you make hay when the sun shines. Well, when it's raining, you can't make hay. So you you save and you you figure out what to do when there is a rainy day and that money should be sitting there waiting for you. But so many people, as you said, have been conditioned culturally that the government that's the government's responsibility. Well, it they're terrible at it. Like they're terrible at everything else. And if you I guarantee if they if they got rid of unemployment and allowed you, or even, you know, just the minarchist idea, it would be a huge step forward if the government said Okay, we're going to do away with unemployment, but you have to show on your taxes every year where you've put so much, what percentage of your income into savings. That would be better than with the system we have now. Because you could put your money into a, you know, a mutual fund, whatever you want, and it could maybe even gain interest, but then pile up in a savings account and, and show that you haven't spent it. And then you could recondition people to the idea of you can do this yourself. You can create your un your own unemployment fund where you save your own money for when you lose your job or the or the plant shuts down or you break your leg and you've got your own insurance policy via a savings account. And, you know, that's the idea of, uh, you know, Dave Ramsey and the idea of creating emergency fund. But this isn't a new concept. It's, it's, it's old hat. It's something that people used to do all the time. And many people don't have savings account. When you look at the savings accounts, when you look at the statistics – Many people don't save money, and it's because it's largely because of the conditioning that people don't feel like they they have to, and they feel like their money isn't worth what it would be if they don't just spend it. Which they're not wrong, but if you you are facing a dilemma where you could get laid off, and then you have nothing to go on, and then you're depending on a, a state and federal agency to send you a check till you find a new job, that's not a situation I'd like to be in. And many people don't like to be in those situations. So uh, yet again, it's another instance of a government creating a policy with the best of intentions and it not working out. And it, and it, them seeing not seeing the second and third and fourth uh, consequences of, of what they're doing. And, you know, it's I feel terrible for all those people that have lost their jobs and it is a bad situation. I've been, you know, everybody's been in a situation of having to look for a new job and it's not a fun place to be. But I would feel better personally if I had my own, uh, you know, just be able to take care of myself and be able to depend on what I'm putting into whatever situation as far as finances goes and having to try to depend on the government. But um on to the next issue. Taylor, let's talk about kids working in mines. Um, I'm just kidding. So the state uh, passed a law that has to do with child labor and, and talked about earlier off mic, but I'm not real familiar with what it was. Can you fill us in on what the legislation actually was? Yeah, and, and there are probably some details that I, I will either miss or, or misconstrue, but effectively, um, currently, um, Children aged 14 and 15 have to go through a work permit process, um, and um, there are a lot of restrictions on times and 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 um, when and how and all that that goes into it. And effectively, the the bill and I, I I'm glad it uh, passed. I was I thought it was still awaiting passage, but um, effectively what it does was would to remove a lot of those restrictions and, and give um, young men and women who are the ages of 14 and 15, a lot more flexibility um, in seeking those opportunities and obtaining work experience um, either, you know, obviously 
after school and, and on the summers and, and so on. And um, really just provides the opportunity for them to gain, I think, very valuable life experience, career experience, um, and, and so on. But again, it is one of those small liberty wins that this uh, legislature uh, is is you know, providing. But it is funny because it is one of those common anti-libertarian tropes that um, if we got our way, um, you know, we would have the children working in the mines again. And, you know, yes, you know, the end goal would be to remove restrictions uh, of anyone working anywhere. But, you know, I, I think what we do see is that, that when you remove or put in place, I guess, a lot of these restrictions and, and, and really policing on, on opportunities, you see a cultural shift, um, you know, of work ethic and and just, I don't want to say moral degradation, but effectively, I mean, I, you know, I grew up and I worked when I was 14 and 15. I worked before then, uh, not, you know, in a, in a capacity where I was getting a W-2, but um, I worked with my stepdad doing construction and, and things along those lines. And the people who, you know, use this trope or levy this trope against us, you know, they want to make sure that the police are cracking down on on situations like that and, and have my stepdad thrown in jail for child labor law violations where I was actually learning skills. I was, um, he was a contractor. So I was you know, learning a lot about the standard tools and how to use them and, and workplace safety and stuff from uh, someone that, you know, I probably wouldn't have been hired by another uh, an actual contracting firm but i could go to work and watch him and, and learn from him and and you know that would be illegal in a lot of uh today's sense uh, and and if the some of these folks had their way um but it, it is a, a situation where uh we rely we as a society have decided to rely solely on the state to educate our 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 youth and and we see it also the flip side of this is the fight against uh charter schools and, and other types of education you know these people believe that only your local public school is how your child should learn anything and i think unfortunately it's taken us this long to get to a bowling point but uh, due to a lot to COVID and and some, and some of the anti woke stuff, but people are really opening their eyes to um, you know the public school system and and its failings, um, both in an outcomes perspective, but also in the cost, both financially and and socially and everything else. That uh, folks are looking to homeschool more, utilize charter schools, parochial schools, uh, etc. And I think that's great. And and this is just you know another opportunity to give the freedom back to the parents um, and, the, and the children themselves to say, hey, I want to go and work at Chick-fil-A or I want to go and, um, you know, work on my uncle's farm or I want to go do X and removing a lot of the restrictions that the state has put in place um, and, and worrying about having to check in with the government all the time just because that person, that, that kid wants to make a few extra bucks after school um, or during the summers and, and all that, and also gain that life experience that I think that we drastically need in today's society. So, you know, that's kind of the long and the short of a tie. Um, I, I do um, I do kind of chuckle at some of the folks who are, you know, against it because they sound eerily of the, you know, putting afraid that we'll have, uh, you know, little 
toddlers with coal dust, uh, covered in coal dust or things along those lines. But it's definitely a, a step in the right direction to allow folks um, at that age to uh, participate in the workforce but and gain some valuable experience, but also um, you know, to, to learn uh, outside of, of their seven to three or whatever the schools run um, education system. And it is a trope that a lot of the people that are opposed to these type of things uh, throw out there. You talk about, you know, there's the famous Chicago fire where it originated from a, I think it was a textile factory. And a lot of the people that died in that fire were for young people, you know, people under the age of 18. And I understand that's horrible and, and it's a black mark on our history. But when you look at the scheme of things, this is a time in our, our industrial age that, a lot of people are at right now in places like China, India, and it's a phase that most cultures go through. And, and culturally in the United States, it's pretty uncommon to find anybody that thinks that a, a small child should work in a mine because or work in a textile factory because they got small hands and they can fit in the machinery or whatever. And I don't know if people have seen the, the movie, uh, uh, what is it, Ice Train or whatever that I don't remember what Chris, uh, I don't pop culture uh, i should know marvel but uh is a movie about a train and they have kids down in the engine compartment because they're small enough to fix the parts and we're, we're far from that culturally and like you said Pete, you working on your dad's construction company and i you know i grew up on a farm from the age of 13 and i'll tell you there was no childhood labor laws for you know people that are undocumented and and i did a lot of stuff and worked really hard when i was 13 to 18 that that nobody would think was something a child should be doing, but I loved it and I learned a lot and I gained a lot of skills and skills that help me to this day in my job from day in, day out. And you have to juxtaposition the reality of what's being uh, proposed and our history. When you're quoting things from the 1930s and 20s, I have a hard time taking you seriously that you actually have an, a, a firm grasp on what our culture's like. No, I mean... I, not to be hyperbolic, but, you know, people are softer now than they've ever been. The idea that people are going to send their kids to a mine and a mind is going to accept the liability of a seven-year-old in their mind is just absurd. They're not going to send these kids to, to hard industrial labor. First of all, they don't have the skill set. I don't even know why I'm having to say this. But you look at your average seven, eight, nine, ten year old, even up to fifteen. The idea that an employer is going to be like, "Yep, that's who I want," you know, making me profit. No, there, the, those the cultural cultural mores that would be required for that to happen just don't exist anymore. You're talking about kids that maybe are even on the poverty scale that want to be able to go out and make themselves some money and want to learn skills and build a resume. And I'm telling you, and you know this, you've been to college. People look for that stuff. If you've had in you know employment through your teenage years, it gives you a leg up in the industry, in any industry. If you want to start a job, you know where your credentials match, and you've got no work history, that's a blemish compared to other people that do. And if you can go out at fifteen or fourteen and get a job, you know flipping burgers or you know throwing hay bales, and you can get a W two and show your proof of history of work. You're going to be a leg up compared to other kids that didn't do that. And the idea that the state would come in and say, well, that's not good for kids. But they can sit in a classroom for eight hours and be yelled at at the lunch table not to talk. Like, what skills are you teaching? Like, And, you know, not to sound like an old boomer, but that's one of the biggest issues in our country right now is you have so many young people that have no discernible life skills. 
can't change tires. I read a stat about people that know how to run manual transmissions in cars. Compared to Europe, it's like in the the 10% range here in the United States. We invented the automobile. You know, Detroit, uh, Michigan, in the United States of America, you know, is the heartland of manufacturing vehicles. And we don't know how to run manual transmissions. It, we've we've dumbed everything down and we've made everybody so uh, accustomed to things being easy. Well, kids need to learn these skills as early as they can. And I'm not saying they need to go out and work a nine to five job every day for 40 hours a week to gain these skills. But n- again, nobody is suggesting that. They're saying, hey, maybe yep. a kid goes to Wendy's after school and flips burgers till 7 p.m. And then they go home and do their homework. Like these are skills and learning tough things to do that I have to earn my living or earn my movie money or whatever kids do these days. Go down to the, you know, <laughs> pinball machine and shoot some, Bl- shoot some player. Go to Blockbuster and go to Blockbuster <laughs> yeah, and get a, I don't, a DVD. I don't know what these kids do these days. Go, <laughs> you know, hunt some Pokemon at the park. But uh, <laughs> maybe they learn those skills and they get a little bit of, you know, uh, fold money, as they say. And then they go home and do their homework and they go, oh, man, I'm tired, but I got to do this. These are skills that are useful when you become an adult and learning them earlier than later is a, is going to benefit our culture and benefit our economy. And that seems to be the goal of all the centralized planning. So I think it's a win as well. I mean, I don't know, as we've talked about, it's kind of hard to, to read what this legislature is going to do as far as, you know, restoring liberty and freedom, but this is a win, just like the raw milk thing. This one's a win, I think. And I don't think it's going to be adversely affecting any kids. Yeah, and, and you know, Ty, that the, the problem is um, uh, the argument against it. The, the quote was one of the um, um, con- or congressman legislators was saying, "Well, what you know, you're gonna ha- what about the families who will uh, utilize their child for income? You know, and basically ab- effectively abuse a child in a way that they're gonna send them to Wendy's and, and work more than they want to, or and all get that, in a time machine and look there. back to me on the farm. Like no, like I was splitting firewood at seventeen. No, like I right. was shredded, well, sweating every summer. This is it's just ridiculous. Well, and, and and here's the thing though, right, Ty? Like the 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 problem is, or the issue, I guess, is you'll never have a perfect situation. And 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 that is the that is the problem is these legislators go down there these congressmen go out to D.C. and it, they throw away the good and hope for the perfect right like we have a problem where we have low we have prevented low skill workers young people at the ages of, you know fifteen to or fourteen to eighteen from entering the workforce um, easily and filling in low skill low wage jobs well what happens you have to fill those with upper uh, age individuals who then demand it to be a living wage. So you have, you have the, as a roundabout correlated um, unintended consequence, you have this fight for increased minimum wage, which drives up the cost of, of regular things. And then now what do you see? Because of these costs going up, these companies are investing and doing research into burger flipping machines. <laughs> so, you know, I know this is kind of truncating all this down rapidly, but that's what happens when you, limit the market in, in, in such a way people try to find ways out and around it so you're eliminating uh, opportunities for folks to gain these skills to l- make these life lessons at an early age and you're eliminating really by the necessity of these corporations um, to fill these positions now are doing it uh, with technology that they might not have had to research if they could have just paid some kid 
525 an hour, but now you have to pay him 15 an hour. You have to pay some 30 year old 15 an hour because they didn't get the life skills and, and the experience earlier on. Um, now they're investing in, in robots to come in for the burgers. So here we are. Um, and I'm not saying that having uh, kids work earlier would have prevented all of this, but it would have probably slowed a lot of it down and all because we're worried that some uh, crappy parent might keep some or most of the money the kid makes. Well, you're, you're going to have that, but we can't take away the freedom of folks to participate in the marketplace, to learn, learn skills, gain experience and make money because some small percentage of bad things might happen. Um, and that's how all of, all of these bills are, are attacked or on the other side are proposed because, well, there's a small problem here. There's a small percentage of individuals who are face are ex- involved in this marketplace and they're getting a bad run of it. And in, instead of trying to resolve or think through the actual problems of it, the, the quick and easy thing is to pass a bill or to vote down a bill when the bill is actually trying to bring about more freedom and liberty. Yeah. And you, and I, you're similar to my age, but I know a lot of people a little bit older than me that they'll always say, they'll talk about having a job when they were a teenager and it was pretty commonplace. Well, I didn't know a ton of people my age in their teenage years that had a real, you know, as you said, a W2 job. A lot of them worked on farms and things. And and in the summertime, they would get odd jobs mowing lawns and things, but it just wasn't something that people did here as far as, you know, there wasn't a lot of opportunity. There was McDonald's and a couple other places that people can get, but it didn't, you know, fill the market of people that would have needed jobs if they all got, went out at 15 or 16 and got jobs. So it's, it's a cultural thing that West Virginia has always done. You know, my son, he's 10 for a couple of years now. He has uh, gotten all the money from our, our eggs. We have about 35 chickens and he sells eggs and, you know, we do most of the selling. We, we, you know, transport the eggs and, and, but it's, it's a way for him to understand the idea of making money. We make him feed the chickens. He waters them. He goes and cleans their their nesting boxes out, and he gathers the eggs every day. And is he making any money in reality? No. The feed costs much more than he makes in, in egg money. But it's an opportunity for us to pass those skills on to him. You do this work, and you get money for it. He bought his, you know, this I know <laughs> as a libertarian, he bought his lifetime hunting and fishing license with his egg money. And I've never had a hunting license. I've had fishing license here and there when I had to, but it was it was something that he mentioned that he wanted and we said this is the amount, this is how much you have to save. These are basic things that people used to do with their kids and we have the opportunity to do that because we live in rural West Virginia and we can do that. But a lot of people in cities and even in cities in in West Virginia like Charleston, these kids don't have those opportunities. So the idea that you're going to take that from them, that opportunity to learn these skills in my opinion, is immoral. And, and I know that's dramatic, but if you're 15, 16, 17 years old and people are saying, oh, you're too, you're too precious to go out and work, that's insulting because they're not. They can do this work. They can, they can do these things. Mm-hmm. It's not hard labor. They're, like we keep saying, they're not in the mines. They're not getting black lung. <laughs> they're flipping burgers or stocking shelves or, or whatever or, or throwing hay bales for somebody. That's fantastic for them. And and I know this we're getting repetitive, but it's just so it seems so simple to me. And and but I think the main issue is 
the culture thing is that we're past those times. So if anybody argues with you about this and says, you know, <laughs> references anything from back when they rode horses and wore, uh, you know, skinny ties, just tell them, yeah, yeah, we're not there. We're, we're in a culture where people respect each other more as far as the, uh, the fragility of youth. And we're not having to have our kids go and make our income for us. People aren't having 17 kids to work on the farm. They're having average two to three. What is it? Two and a half kids? Is that the whole trope? Um, I think it's like one and a half kid now. Yeah, well, hey, guess what? That's not enough to run a farm. <laughs> Nobody's making any money with labor off of one and a half kids. So get that out of your head. So, yeah, th- yeah, that's that's a good thing. And I'm glad the legislature, as much as we harp on the Republicans, I'm that that's a positive they're doing. Um so well, and I'll, I'll just yeah, say, I'll just say just to, to that tie, you know, I just very cautious uh, or, or would caution our, our listeners to pay attention. There are Republicans who are out, you know, coming against bills like this. The one, you know, these small wins that we're getting um, in, in the legislature as libertarians and, and lovers of liberty. There are there are actual Republicans, folks who, uh, you know, espouse to be. Um, free market people and people for, um, uh, you know, people for freedom and liberty. It just, it just shows you that they they really can't be trusted. Um, these are the, the the attacks that they're lobbying are the ones you would expect from from Democrats and and folks on the liberal side of things um, to restrict this type of opportunities and and freedoms. But it's actual Republicans, um, and I just you know, people say, well. You, you have to vote this way on a certain issue or, and it's, it's the, the lines are very blurred. Um, and there's only one party that will continually and has continually stood up for, uh, freedom and Liberty in both the social and, and economic sense. And it's not Republicans, it's libertarians. Here, here. Um, so yeah, so it, it, there's a lot of stuff coming in on the legislature. I just wanted to make, uh, uh we're coming, coming up on, on an hour, but, I want to, as far as children go and keeping them safe, I, I have a personal stake in it, but I just wanted to throw it out there that there were several, four or five foster care bills that had been presented and they're all floating around committees. And I, I don't, I, I have high hopes that some of them will come out of committee and get voted on on the main floor. But the state, and a lot of people don't know this, but foster kids, they are basically what they used to term wards of the state. And in foster care, these kids are the responsibility lies on the state for their care, and it is a horrible system. Ask any foster parent; they'll tell you the system is is broken and it needs to be fixed. So, if the people on the on the Democrat side who are voting against child labor, and even the Republicans who are voting against it, are the ones that say they champion the rights of children, this is a huge issue, and this is just a PSA call out for me: is that. This system needs to be fixed, and they're not doing anything about it. So if you think the government has the best interest of children and all life, they do not. They they have shown very uh, clearly that this is not a priority. And not only to the unborn or the born, these are children that are in the custody of the state of West Virginia that are being neglected and looked over. So that's just my short PSA. People keep keep attention to that. And if you have any interest, contact your legislators and tell them that's something you're interested in. Um, we're forced to, it's not a system that I care for. I would much rather as a libertarian that this be uh, more of a private um, entity regulated issue, but it's not. The state has the control. 
So they need to take responsibility for the kids that are in their custody. So that's just a short PSA for me involving the legislature. So, Taylor, do we have anything else that uh, has caught your eye with the legislature in the last couple of weeks? Uh, there are a couple of things. I, I know uh, we have our, our wonderful uh, gubernatorial candidate, Erica, uh, wants to hop on and, and do one. So we'll maybe leave those. I know there's an issue with mug shots um, and SNAP benefits and a few other things. So we will uh, chat about those next time when we get uh, her uh, on the horn here. But there there a lot of, as they're saying, red meat issues, uh, politically advantageous for Republican issues to talk about. Not a whole lot of uh, cutting the budget, not a whole lot of cutting taxes, um, not a whole lot of reducing uh, the size of and, and scope of government's intrusion in our lives, really. Uh, a few small wins that we mentioned, but I, I agree with some of the, the legislatures that you talked about, um, their sentiment that there's other, there's a lot of other liberty bills that uh, are floating around that need to be moved. Um, we'll take the wins when we get them, but they're definitely not living up to uh, the, their power of a supermajority of Republicans in, in delivering liberty and, and small government. Absolutely. And uh, I would like to say that we could look forward to some of that changing, but until people start uh, seeing the light and realizing that these people aren't what they say they are, it's just going to keep happening. So the reason we do this podcast, get people converted, uh, join the Libertarian Party. We aren't uh, what a lot of people say we are. Uh, you can hear what Taylor and I talk about, and if, if you're a Republican and you're you're seeing what's going on and you're, you're finding it frustrating— um, contact one of us. A lot of us are on Facebook, the West Virginia Libertarian Party uh, Facebook page, Twitter. Uh, shoot us a message if you want to talk to somebody on the phone. I'm sure somebody will give you their number to call you and, and see what we're about. Um, you can look up our, our platform and see that it's very similar to the Republicans have. We just mean what we say when we say it. And uh, yeah, so hurrah for liberty. Uh, we'll take the wins when we get them, as you said, Taylor. Um, yeah, so as far as this podcast goes, um, keep on listening. We need you to like, comment, and subscribe. If you're on uh, Spotify, you can you can follow us there. Give us a five-star review. If you're on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review. Leave us a comment. Even if it's negative, give us a five-star review so that people can hear our, our terrible podcast if you feel that way. Um, some of the other podcatchers that people have, you can't leave reviews, but uh, keep subscribing even if you don't want to listen. Keep on letting it download so we get those numbers so it can spread out to other people so they can hear the message of liberty from the Libertarian Party of West Virginia. Um, Taylor, do you have any final uh, messages? Talk about the convention coming up. Yeah, we're uh, closing in three weeks now away, uh, I think, to the date uh, or to the day. So March 16th in Morgantown, West Virginia, looking to have three uh, great speakers um, on our major party platform initiatives of this year, which are uh, criminal justice reform, uh, economic and regulation reform and, and school choice. Um, we'll hear from our uh, gubernatorial candidate. We'll nominate other candidates for positions around the state that are uh, folks who are interested in running uh, as libertarians. We'll hear from a couple um, our libertarian presidential candidates um, possibly that day. We do actually have some events scheduled with a couple of the uh, libertarian presidential candidates. We have some Zoom virtual town halls and meet and greets. Uh, not sure what the difference is between them, but that's what they asked to be called. Um, one is with Chase Oliver. Um, senatorial candidate out of uh, Georgia is now running for the presidential spot, and Lars Mapstead, uh, I think this van out from the West Coast area, 
Um, both will be coming up. They, the events are up on our Facebook page. If you are interested in hearing from uh, Libertarian presidential candidates, um, we'll be selecting that person, not at our state convention, but at the national convention uh, later in May in DC. But we uh, they wanted to speak to Libertarians in West Virginia. So we've got some opportunities to do that as well. So we're excited to have some events coming up in the within the next month um, to get some Libertarians in and uh, together. Um, but you know, Ty, I just uh, agree. Uh, leave us a comment. I know we have an email address, right? Do we have, uh, I want to share that so we can maybe get some uh, comments we can uh, answer and uh, respond to. Yeah, it's Mountain State Liberty Cast, all one word, at gmail.com. I have to check that email. That would be good. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, leave us a comment there if you have any, you know, corrections or want us to talk, talk about a topic. Hit us up there. We try to share this on our social media. Um, share those things so that people can see what we're doing. Um, yeah, the the convention's going to be good. We got a co- couple of good high profile speakers that people know about uh, the the presidential candidates. It's a it's a hot year for being a libertarian, and and we're trying to do our best to spread the the message of liberty and get our party growing in the state of West Virginia. But until next time, um, thanks for tuning in, and don't hurt people, and don't take their stuff. <laughs> <laughs>